Hey, Michael here. Uh, you will now hear uh, some episodes of the Michael Girdley show that we had branded differently, uh, called Unusual Profits or some such like that. Same show, same person, just me interviewing people and producing content that could be helpful on your journey and mine as well. So uh, with no further ado, here's the episode. Hey, Michael here. Uh, sponsor for today's show is actually uh, a product that I'm a part of called DM Bridge. Uh, and what DM Bridge is, uh, is a service that we built uh, to solve the problem that Twitter's direct messaging functionality is a total mess. So we built DM Bridge to help you fix that. Um, a lot of the other solutions uh, do things like requiring you to install a whole nother inbox. We didn't want another inbox, so we created DM Bridge. And what it does is it takes all of your Twitter DMs and has them appear inside of your email inbox. So you can reply to them just like it's a regular email. You see them just like it's a regular email. You can search them later like it's one of your regular emails, all just by using DM Bridge. So uh, we're currently live with the product. I uh, would love for you to sign up and become a customer. Uh, and check it out. So you can find that at dmbridge.app uh, and go on there, put in your name uh, and be either part of the beta or join us as part of the live use of the product. And again, check it out, dmbridge.app. All right. Welcome to the How My Business Works podcast. It is a wonderful Friday afternoon. I am your host, Michael Gridley, and I am here recording today with a special and exciting guest uh, to talk to us about <laughs> the world of hard money lending, uh, Matt Weider. Matt, have you ever had anybody describe hard money lending as a wonderful and exciting business? Never. No, I've, I've tried to post a little bit about it on Twitter and uh, the engagement is a uh subpar so i don't know maybe this will this will be the spark that i need to blow it up you'll be the next in <laughs> the next mini storage coffee drive through that's it uh, the sexy thing on real estate private equity the sexy stuff on twitter yeah this is this is private real estate lending's moment right here yeah this is it we're gonna make it happen well it, it's it's interesting there's an inverse correlation between stuff that i'm involved in the magnitude of that the bigger the magnitude is on my personal like world, the less people are interested in it on Twitter. But like the, hey, I was bored during COVID and I started a coffee business. Like everybody just wants to talk about that. Like, and it's just like, it's just the weirdest phenomenon. I'm like, no, no, check out this tech thing I did. It's like a million times bigger and like super important. And nobody nah, cares. No, I want to talk about that. Yeah. It's like, well, let's talk about the shack where you're selling coffee. <laughs> okay, I was like, okay, fine. We'll just do it. But again, thanks so much for being here. You've had like a really cool background. We definitely want to dig into that. But first of all, I'd love to love to just kind of get a 101 from you for somebody not familiar. You know, what is what is your business? What do you guys do? What's the market and that sort of thing? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, again, thanks for thanks for having me on the pod. Um, so my company is Longleaf Lending. We're based out of uh, Houston, Texas, where we lend only in Texas right now, although we can go outside of Texas, which probably grow uh, someday, but um, we are private real estate lenders. So you may have heard hard money, private lending, private money is the most recent one. So we go buy all of them. Uh, Got to give the people what they want. So we'll put all those keywords on the website, but we, we basically make loans that banks can't. So mm -hmm. whether due to uh, speed, um, you know, I can fund a deal in 48 hours if uh, we had clear title. And then we also can have some flexibility with regard to uh, underwriting or borrower requirements. So 
My partner and I, um, we co-founded this company about a year ago, but we've been lending for a number of years now. My partner a little bit longer than I. Uh, combined, we've done about 300 loans. Uh, I think we're up to about 65 million total if you look at our kind of entire history. Mm-hmm. And it's been mostly a side hustle for both of us um, for a while. And you know, we got to talking last year, decided to combine efforts, come together and form Longleaf. And so we worked on that over COVID and company went live in December. So kind of about six months of uh, history, really. Yeah. And since December, we've we've done about 70 deals, uh, about 15 million. So you can do math, average, average check size for our loans. We're lending against uh, single family houses. Uh, it's about 225,000. may seem small. I mean, if you're from California, that's probably shockingly low. But if you look at the Texas real estate market, it's got, I think, three or four of the top 10 uh, in the country. And there's just tons of inventory. Um, at that price point, whether it be San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, I really wouldn't count Austin right now. That market's just crazy hot. So we don't really touch it or we don't play there. But the team right now is there's four of us. So myself and Pete, we've got a virtual assistant and then we have a part time kind of commission based uh, loan officer. So still pretty small. We spent a lot of time just ramping up, doing a lot of the work ourselves, um, but also getting the back office the process up and running the tech. And we're going to start. Kind of building the team out from here. I'd say another thing that makes us unique: we're we're direct self-funded lenders, so we we're not brokers. You know, come to us. We're lending with our balance sheet. Uh, we haven't taken any investor capital quite yet. We may do that someday. But the way that we fund deals, it's a combination of our own capital, and then we partner with uh, regional banks here in Texas. So we fund a deal, we take it, and we're able to pledge that promissory note. So that's the collateral that we give the bank, and that creates availability on a, a line of credit. And we use that availability to go fund the next deal. So who is most of us when we buy a house or a fourplex or whatever, we we go to put down a down payment, we go to the bank and they underwrite us and they underwrite the property, they get an appraisal and all that kind of stuff. So that's obviously kind of mainstream. It doesn't sound like you compete with that kind of scenario. You compete more with special special situations. So like what what are those who are who are the customers that you're you're targeting? Yeah, I think you could break our customers down into two buckets. So, so it's all it's people that are making money investing in single family houses, and that's up to four units. So we can do up to a fourplex. Anything above that is considered commercial. So mm-hmm. there's, I would say, two camps. There's the guys they want to go fix and flip and then sell it. So they're buying a property, they're doing some work, so a rehab or a renovation, improving the property, raising the value, and then listing it and selling it. There's another camp that is doing what's called the Burr method, not to be confused with money printing. But if you're if you're around real estate, you may have heard that. But it's I'll see if I can get this right. It's buy, rehab, rent, refi, and then repeat. So basically, building a, a portfolio of cash flowing assets is a is a way to generate kind of semi passive income or, or build wealth over time. And so they use hard money lenders like us to quickly purchase the asset and then. They'll do a once the property is improved and they have a tenant in it, they will do a cash out refi, get into some cheaper capital or a cheaper note, some 30 year paper. And then uh, they'll use, if there is a cash out component, they'll take those proceeds and they'll kind of roll them forward into, into the next deal. So it, it just sounds like the Burr guys are, and gals are doing basically, they're, they're both doing value add, right? Both, both camps are taking a piece of real estate, fixing it up, and it's just what happens on the other side. The flippers are selling it. And that's how you get your money back. That's how they make money. 
the Burr folks are leasing it up and then then holding it for some period of time afterwards. But it, at its core, everybody coming to you is fixing up real estate. They're rehabbing it of some sort. Yeah, for the most part, there there's some deals where, uh, and I would say that most of these deals uh, that they're buying are not listed. Um, so there's kind of an entire industry. You've got wholesalers out there that are finding off-market deals and they're getting them under contract. And then they'll assign the purchase agreement to an investor and that investor will buy it from the actual seller. There's there's some investors that we work with that have their own proprietary deal flow. But for the most part, investors that are playing in this space, they're, they're buying these deals from wholesalers and a lot of them are off-market. Uh, the stuff that is listed that you see in the MLS or in Zillow. Those those deals just don't really pencil. You're not able to buy them uh, deep enough um, for it to make sense buying it with hard money loan. Yeah, well, this the the wholesaler business has been fascinating to me. I've I've known about it for a few years, and I guess I knew one of the folks who ran here locally in San Antonio, the the New Western Acquisitions Group, which I guess is they're statewide or whatnot, but kind of doing that going, they would go and find people with off-market properties or things with problems and then never actually really take possession of them. Like there was a simultaneous close where the seller sells it and the, you know, the, the flipper buys it the same day and they take a cut, you know, in the middle of those two things. So I, th- I found it to be a fascinating model. Yeah. We actually, I was dealing with Northwestern two weeks ago on a, on a transaction. So exactly as you described, they, uh, they do a, it's called a double close and you know, they're just making a spread. So usually it's 15 or $20,000 uh, that they're making um, as a cut on the deal, yeah. but they're never taking possession. They're never owning the actual asset. So how is how are those guys not like predatory? I mean, it feels a little like, wouldn't these guys be able to, are they taking advantage of people who should know better, right? Should get a, do a, a public market list, you know, a public listing of it on MLS and have a real agent listing them and stuff like it. I guess why is that repeatable? And <laughs> why is it not yucky? It feels a little feels a little predatory. It, it can be, and I think there are some that are a little bit more predatory or predatory than than others. So for sure, they they do target. They're able. There's a lot of data out there, and they can look at properties that are about to be foreclosed on. For whatever reason, though, I mean, that that person that owns the asset got themselves to the point where they're getting foreclosed on, and oftentimes taking an offer from a wholesaler is better. It's mm-hmm. a better outcome for them, um, you know. Rather than lose all the equity, maybe they're able to recover some of it. There's other um, sellers of some of these assets that you know maybe they're out of state. Those are common targets, and you know for whatever reason, people just want the cash fast. They don't want to deal with a, a 30, 60 day close, or maybe somebody backing out, and so they're willing to um, sell it for a little bit less than market value uh, in order to get that cash. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's predatory folks in every industry. Um, but uh, I think for the most part, everybody's or most of them are well-intentioned. And, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it keeps me in business. So, <laughs> Well, and so how how do you end up finding borrowers? Is it coming through the wholesalers? Like, are you, is that how you're, you're finding referrals and stuff or people who need money just find you? Or how are your borrowers coming in the door? Yes, yeah, so my, my first deal, I guess we can get into that a little bit. I previously worked in... Investment banking and one of my partner, one of my coworkers uh, here in Houston, we were energy upstream uh, bankers. He had a deal that he didn't want to fund. Uh, he was doing this on the side already, uh, and he, he handed it off to me. So that was my first deal. I got coached on it, and from there, I had a, a friend that I went to school with that actually did some wholesaling, and it just snowballed from there. 
people liked working with me. Word of mouth, they handed off me to somebody else and that person to another folk, you know, some other folks. And, you know, before I knew it, I had done 40 deals in about a year. So we're still primarily word of mouth. Uh, we just recently have started leaning in on the marketing piece and we're experimenting with that. And a lot of it's what we found that works so far as Facebook ads and we're working on search engine optimization. We're gonna, you know, we just put our first blog post. We're going to start working on trying to rank higher organically. We found out that does not work is Google, Google click ads. We spent a bunch of money on that paid a marketing firm to run that. Not successful. I mean, we get a way, way better return on the, on the Facebook stuff. Hmm. I'd say another way that's been pretty successful for us is we've uh, partnered with real estate events around town. A lot of those are starting to come back with uh, kind of COVID behind us. These in-person events, and so we've we've sponsored them, and you know we get a couple minutes to talk. We put up a booth. There's definitely a huge ground game component. People like doing deals um, with people they know and they like, especially this industry. Um, and so we've gotten pretty good reception from uh, showing up to those events and spending a little bit of money. Hmm. But um, yeah, so far it's been a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. So walk walk me through the economics. So basically, if I were to go and say I'm a house flipper and I have very limited capital, so I can't go to the bank, um, which that, you know, let's say that money should cost me three to 5%, depending upon owner occupied, all that kind of stuff, size and whatnot. What are the economics, you know, the setup work with y'all? So you, you're charging origination points. Like how, how does that work in terms of the money being at a higher interest rate from a hard money lender? Yeah, we're definitely expensive. Uh, the rates, I think the industry it probably ranges from, I don't know, somewhere eight and up to 15%. Um, you know, we're, we're there in the middle. We're reasonable on rates. We're not going to be the cheapest, but our, we range from 10 to 12%. So you're going to, if you're new with us, you're going to start out 12% and trying to build long-term relationships with our bars. So we, our goal is to try and get you down a little bit lower if possible. So you'll pay, at least with us, anywhere from 10 to 12%. And there's usually a point or two up front. So generally it's, you know, we'll start somebody out at 12% and then two points. So you're unfamiliar with the point is that's just two uh, percent of the loan. One, you know, if it's one point, it's one percent of the loan value uh, that you pay at close. Generally upfront, some of those points can be deferred to uh, the back end or the payoff. Mm-hmm. As far as other fees, um, sometimes there's an appraisal fee, you know, a document fee, buyer fee. Uh, we we treat most of those as pass through. There's some lenders that try and charge as much as they can on fees, as and they treat it like a profit center, but try and minimize those. So. As far as the rest of the deal structure, though, I can walk through an example if that would yeah. be helpful. Just how Please. about or how how we think about kind of loan to value and how we get to a, a determination. So, let's say you know we're working with one of our borrowers and he's found a target property. Let's call it you know it's hundred fifty thousand is the purchase price. Uh, he's th- he thinks there's about twenty five thousand in rehab that needs to get done, and so we're looking at an all in kind of all in cost of. 175,000. We do our homework. Um, we come up with what's considered a, an ARV. So that stands for after repair value. Okay. And we agree that that after repair value is 250,000. Um, we're we're going to want some type of skin in the game. So we're not going to fund the full purchase price and the rehab. So our loan value is not going to be 175, but we'll go up to kind of a minimum is uh, like 90%. It's a good rule of thumb. So We'll fund 90% of the acquisition, so 135,000, and then 100% of the rehab. So our loan value is 160. So the math on that. Go so ahead. you'll expect them to have the the flipper needs to have some skin in the game. It's just 
for them, it may be a proportionally large amount of money, but as a percentage alone, it could be pretty small, right? You have 10% collateral or, or 5%. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, that's right. So in this case, the the equity requires fifteen grand, but okay. you know that's still less. That's still less than you know the twenty percent that usually you'd have to bring to the table for a mortgage. Got it. Got it. Okay. And there, so, there are definitely there are definitely circumstances where if the loan value is low enough, we might go higher than ninety percent. There's some lenders that'll do hundred percent loan to cost, so that there's little required out of pocket for the investor, uh, aside from closing costs. But generally, ninety percent is a good rule of thumb. And so this example, you've got. Loan value of 160, the value of the property is 250. So your loan to after repair value is kind of right around 65%. And so that that's the last check for us. Um, we're not going to go, we're not going to lend more than 70% on a property. And so let's say the the after repair value, the valuation of the, the property is a little bit lower. I don't know, call it like 200 or 215. If that's the case, then you know we might still do the deal, but we're just going to bring less to close and the uh, the borrower, the investor is just going to have to bring the difference. Got it. And then you make your, you make your money on that through the origination fees. So let's say two points up front, right? That'd be a, a $6,000 commission on a, a $200,000 deal. And then you would get interest obviously on the money that you loan, um, which that's, you know, the 10 to 12% per annum interest is what you're charging folks. And those are typically their interest-only loans. There's no amortization or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. They're kind of six months to twelve-month deals and interest-only. As far as I mean, our model is pretty unique, and gotta give my partner credit for kind of figuring it out. Mm-hmm. When I describe it to people, it seems pretty strange. We go to banks, they lend money to us, and we turn around and we lend that money to borrowers. Um, but these are loans that they never would be able to do. But if we we're in between in the transaction, they can get comfortable with it. So I like to tell. Uh, my real estate Twitter friends that, so let's, let's call it a, it's a 12% deal. So the interest rates 12%, two points and there's six months uh, maturity. So in a given year, we're going to turn that deal twice. Mm-hmm. So you can think about it as being like a 16 cap that we're levering up to 80, 85% with our bank line. And we're borrowing from the bank at 4%. So it's a, uh, the returns are pretty strong following this method. There's definitely a lot of downsides to uh, managing a bunch of different bank relationships. Uh, we have great partners, but uh, at the end of the day, we're dealing with banks and there's lots of paperwork, lots of um, kind of requirements and all of them are a little bit different, but yeah. uh, dealing with it right now because uh, we're growing and uh, it's uh, the returns are good. Yeah. And so you're basically, you're the one with the MBA, not me, but it's, it's basically risk. Yeah, it's basically risk. I, I didn't bring that up. You brought it up. <laughs> it's fine. Well, I was about to use the. I was about to use like an MBA uh, investment banking word, and I, there's a risk I use it wrong because I've totally. I've never had one lesson, uh, so to speak. But I mean, basically, there's a level of risk arbitrage that you're doing here, right? You're you're able to to assume you're assuming some of the risk of these folks not paying back. Uh, and then you can turn around and borrow che- more cheaply because you're you're assuming that risk if there's a problem. And absolutely. Yeah. So core, core of the business. So you're able to borrow. So you're right now you're doing each deal. You're doing a line per deal. Basically you go and you're when, when somebody comes in and wants to borrow a hundred grand, you're going in and get an 80, 80 K short-term line with a, a new bank each time. Or do you, are you guys, you know, do you have a standing line that you're working out of, or I guess a hybrid of the two or how's that working? We have right now, I think it's four, maybe yeah, I think it's, I know we, we're up to five lines right now. 
and each of those has a standing line. Every every time we do a deal, we're not putting a new facility in place. So okay. there's a, a limit on the max that we can draw on that. Even if we provide a, a ton of um, properties to it, there's there's a cap. And we're, we're increasing and growing those lines over time. Like we just got through our first round of increasing them since we got them in place um, late last year. And then are you personally guaranteeing those, you and your partner, or, or how's that working? They are personally guaranteed. Yeah. And that's, that's how the bank gets comfortable there, right? I mean, they've got our balance sheet and our cash flow from other stuff. They're sitting at, you know, if we're lending 70% max and, you know, they're advancing, let's call it 80%. I mean, their loan to value on the thing is probably in the like low 50s. And then mm-hmm. they've got our cash flow, our assets. So it's, it's a really good deal for them. And you can go get construction, a construction loan that um, has a lower rate than us. And I would, I would, from a bank, and I would say that that is a, higher risk product than us, but we pay a higher rates to the banks and the construction, the guys going out and getting a construction deal. So Got it's, it. it's interesting. Um, it's a unique model. We're not the only ones doing it, but um, yeah, we're going to have to figure out the right way to grow going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there is at some point, once you get to scale, there's an opportunity to go get potentially even a cheaper cost of capital, right? And at scale, right? Where you could potentially do some some bank levering, but then have some sort of equity partner in with you or a standing, you know, standing debt fund sitting behind you that could potentially lower the rates with the banks and maybe even make another flexibility thing happen there. I assume as you get to bigger scale and maybe you guys are thinking about that or maybe not. Yeah, absolutely. We've uh, We've had some kind of initial conversations around that going and getting a much bigger facility that might be syndicated to a, a few different parties. We've also looked at junior capital. We got a term sheet a couple of days ago from a, from a lender. It's an asset-based lender that likes kind of sitting at that MES level. So they'd sit behind the first lien. And that was that was interesting. I don't think we're quite at the right point to, to take that type of loan, that term sheet that sits at the kind of the corporate level. But yeah, I think there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of potential to go maybe in about six months once we've got a few more deals under our belt and long lease been around for about a year yeah. to go kind of do one or two facilities. I'm not sure we ever want to do just one facility because if that one decides to go away or that bank gets acquired and they, you know, the acquirer decides that they don't like this product, that could absolutely put us out of business. So and so right now you're on average, you're turning your capital a given dollar, you'll turn it turn it twice a year. Is that what you said? Typically a six month turnaround for these folks from allocation to you know, basically repayment of the loan. Is that, is that about what you're seeing? Yeah. I think right now we're just under six months, but you know, that might just be luck. Uh, we've had a lot of deals pay off pretty quickly recently that we've been able to recycle, but I would say on average, it's probably somewhere in between six and nine months. And that's, well, I guess that's a big factor of how fast can people rehab the homes? And then secondarily, how fast can they monetize them by selling them? And at least in the case of the selling, this is a good time to be selling, but probably the labor shortage and inventory shortage on things like lumber and stuff like that, that's not good for y'all's business. No, I mean, the, the increases, just the, the market, how hot it's been, it's great for our current book. But every time we fund a new, a new deal, we're taking on additional risk, just like you described. You know, the market's valuations are going up. So we're assuming that risk. And then we have actually seen where we have talked to a lot of our borrowers that, um, you know, their prices are going up. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting time to be a lender in this market. We're, we're definitely being cautious, but you know, we're thankful for all the deal flow that's, that's out there right now. Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of minimizing risk for y'all, how, how do you do that? I mean, there's, 
I'm sure mandating title insurance on everything. There's borrower risk. There's um, you know sales risk on the back end. There's um, environmental challenges, and you know reducing those risks obviously would cut into the margins for the flipper. And but there's stuff that you would want to see. Like where where do you kind of draw the line in between what the banks typically want out of stuff with phase one environmental and that kind of junk to like you know, YOLOing it and <laughs> getting the money in so they can get to work. Where, where, do, where do you guys sit kind of in that, that, that stuff? We pretty much follow what most of the rest of the industry does. I mean, there's no environmental assessments that are done um, on residential. Uh, that would definitely be something that is done. There are commercial private lenders as well. They, they consider those loans kind of bridge loans. It's a commercial term. Um, if we were doing that, we'd absolutely have some type of environmental inspection. But I'd, I'd say the things that protect us, just like you mentioned, it's, a, it's a title policy. Uh, so they issue the title commitment at close, and then the policy comes later. So that'll protect us from any type of ownership issues that arise uh, or potentially could arise. You know, they're supposed to clear all that up, but you know, something hasn't happened yet. Knock on wood, but something inevitably could pop up there. You know, we require insurance, so we're protected in the sense that we're added as what's called the mortgagee. So if there is a fire burns house down, we get the payout first rather than that payout, just going directly to the uh, borrower. And, you know, they're like, Oh, great. Just got to check and they run away with the money. So we're on the insurance policy. Uh, we do require flood insurance. So we do a search to make sure, especially in Houston where there's a lot of flood areas, we look to see if they're in a special flood hazard area. And if they are, they're required to provide flood insurance. We don't run, Credit checks, for the most part, unless they're gonna they're, they're gonna be uh, the strategy is to refi. Uh, we don't do background checks yet. That might be something we think about in the future. Uh, but we do get to, and we've been we've been fortunate that we we know most of our borrowers really well. Um, going forward, once we start turning on the marketing, we're going to be introduced to, to new borrowers, and so some of that we're we're figuring out with our underwriting process. And you know, there's that's a good reason that we haven't taken out outside capital quite yet. We want to make sure that our process is is down and it's solid before we go uh, potentially start taking other people's money in the future. But at the end of the day, we're asset based lenders, and so we just need to be comfortable taking that property back. And the way that we do that is by um, just making sure our loan value is strong and doing the comp work ourselves. We don't rely on appraisals. We actually do need appraisals, but one of the reasons that we're so fast is that we can fund them. Uh, we can fund a deal without having an appraisal. We can have that come on the back end, and that's part of the the paperwork and the requirements that we need for our banks. But we do our own comp work. Um, we lend in Texas. We lend in areas that we're familiar with. We're not lending out of state, and you know, just taking somebody else's number is kind of truth because I've, I've seen appraisals go way wrong. So. You kind of hinted about something that I was really curious to understand. So how do you kind of mitigate the asset risk like you're talking about there? Like you make sure you're you're buying, you're loaning money to somebody that really that asset after it's fixed up is going to be worth what they think it's going to be worth and you're not you know left underwater on it. So you, you said you're doing comp work yourself, kind of the stuff that the unappraiser would do. How, how do you guys go about that? That's right. We use uh, some software. It gets us MLS access. We actually don't, neither of us have our real license, but our, um, you know, we do have team members that have that. One of our uh, loan officers has it. Uh, but there's other ways without being a, a realtor to get access to the MLS. So we're looking at what the actual sale, sale prices were. And so we're looking at those comps, getting comfortable with them. I mean, again, we're looking in areas that we're familiar with because there's always peculiarities with areas that you might not pick up from just looking at the comps. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also do, depending on the deal, we'll, we'll look at rental comps too. So if things really go bad and we need to take the property over and, you know, potentially the market's wrecked for whatever reason and we can't sell the asset, you know, can we turn that into a rental and put it on the market and at least hold on to the asset and cover some of our costs in the meantime. And so you guys will do almost everything an appraiser does. It sounds like you'll look at comps, you'll, you'll build a, a, a sales model and outcome model around stuff. You do site visits, I assume. Yeah, we do site visits. Uh, we'll either go out and inspect the property ourselves or we'll send an inspector out. Yeah. You mentioned a kind of like a little model depending on if it's for experienced guys, we probably won't do this. Um, we just, I mean, some of it's bandwidth, uh, in the future, once we have more team members, we might figure out, you know, we might improve our process a little bit, but we do have a profitability calculator. So looking at what their rehab is and what their all in costs are going to be, what are they paying interest and closing costs and insurance and actually making sure that there's enough margin there. Uh, they're going to make enough money on a deal for it to make sense. And, you know, we, we like being the sole borrower or the sole lender for a lot of our borrowers. Um, you know, we'll, we'll tell them if the deal sucks and a lot of them are thankful for that. So we, we built these relationships up and a lot of our borrowers will just keep coming back to us because they actually trust um, our advice and, and they value it. Yeah. Well, I, I would guess there are times in which a borrower has come to you that maybe is somebody, you know, is upfront and you tell them you don't think the deal underwrites and they should rethink about, about doing it. Is it, has that happened before or is that by the time it gets to you, that ship has sailed and those people are, are pot committed to doing the deal or has that ever happened? Yeah, it's, it, it definitely happens. And you, know, you, you can risk, you know, losing that potential borrower, but we'd rather have that happen than go fund a, a city deal at the end of the yeah. day. So, yeah. So maybe, maybe this is a dumb question, but you know, you're, you're making your money off of points and a fixed rate of interest. So you, you, that kind of brackets mm-hmm. your returns on the deal. Um, has anybody experimented with say like a, you know, a floor, a, a floor with kind of accelerators as the deal gets more profitable for the other side, you're, you'd be okay giving them 6% at a base rate, but like above a certain amount of return or a certain amount of gain for them, your accelerators go up with a, you know, say a, almost a carried interest in, in terms of underwriting the deal. Has anybody played with those kind of things or is it just so ingrained that this is the way it works? Everybody just charges points and interest and you go from there. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I definitely haven't heard of that occurring. I mean, there might be some folks that are playing around with that. I just think it, that might be tough to, to try and keep up with and manage and actually measure the returns that the, the borrowers are getting. I mean, a lot of them, we love them, but a lot of them aren't as sophisticated. You might, you might think they are. Um, so it's, it's just interesting model. Think about it, get back to you, but uh, yeah, I'm part of that. Yeah. Well, I guess probably the problem with that model is you don't know what they're actually really spending on the rehab in the grand scheme of things. So it's tough to really, and I'm sure they had, most of these folks are probably like Uber drivers. They way underestimate what their costs are when all is said and done. I don't know if you've ever done that experiment. Next time you're in an Uber, ask an Uber driver what their take home is per hour, and they'll tell you they're gross. They won't. Won't tell you they're net. They don't know. <laughs> like I've I've asked, I've asked probably thirty of them. I have weird hobbies, and only one who was like a college economics professor doing it on the side for fun. Knew, knew what his net was. He's like, yeah, I'm making eleven thirty seven an hour after expenses and depreciation of my vehicle, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, so. okay. Thank you, probably right. There, there's some that absolutely do that track it to that level. And we have, you know, we'll fund the rehabs. So we fund 100 percent of 
rehab. So we had their budget. What they actually spent is a mystery. We're not tracking, you know, if they had overages or anything like that. We're so we see a piece of it, but not the whole. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me. <laughs> Let me know if anything magical comes to that. Cool. All right. So let's talk about, let's, we've talked about the things that could go wrong, right? And what you do to mitigate those risks. So there's asset risk, borrower risk, um, there's some market risk, financing risk, all those things are part of it. Um, and then natural disaster risk. So it seems, it seems like you have ways to mitigate all that. Walk me through what happens when things do go wrong. So say, you know, a person who is the flipper gets hit by a bus, right? And they can't finish the deal and it's halfway done and they end up defaulting on you or there's problems. What what do you guys do to kind of earn that spread that you're getting when the risk kind of comes home on the wrong side of the coin? Sure, and uh, don't have a ton of experience actually dealing with this. Uh, my partner's been around uh, doing this a little bit longer than I, so he's, he's had one or two of these. I can talk about one that happened to me. So we, there was an issue, a strong borrower, but he just couldn't get a refi down. Some of this had to do with COVID, the small business owner. His business was having trouble, um, so for whatever reason, he couldn't he couldn't get the refi done. Um, these things were just kind of peculiar. Uh, it was a duplex, it was a peculiar property. wasn't It wasn't ever meant to be listed and sold. You know, people would live in this and rent it, but it's not something that somebody wanted to be owned. So we're kind of stuck. couldn't Couldn't get the refi done. Couldn't really sell it. Um, so in this case, I just worked out a deal with them. It was like, look. Let's avoid the foreclosure. Let's avoid that hit on your record. You know, we can make this happen next week rather than waiting two months to get the cycle to, because you have to, and don't quote me on this, you have to send them a letter. And then there's a certain date you have to to register it with to be on the kind of on the docket for the next month's foreclosure process. And some of that was also complicated during COVID. It wasn't clear if some of those were actually happening or not. And it was dependent on the county and the city. And so we just, it was called a deed in lieu. So he basically deeded the property over to me and I took it. And then I used my network with the wholesalers I know and uh, basically sold the asset to the investor community and uh, recovered my capital that way. And we, we made a deal like, you know, if there's any, if I have to come out of pocket or if I have a loss of principal, then he would have to pay that back, um, which uh, wasn't the case for this, but um, yeah, so we just, you know, we got creative on that one. You know, we were, co- we were cooperative with each other. It wasn't something me against him work together. It was a good outcome. Um, if something does go wrong, generally you can, you get an attorney cause we can write letters or send them emails all day, but people really wake up when they get a letter from an attorney. So we'll pay an attorney to send somebody who's called a demand letter. Say, Hey, you're, you know, you're in default on a loan because you haven't paid interest or the maturity date has passed. Uh, that usually solves the problem. Uh, a lot of the time, they'll get current or they'll go ahead and sell the asset or do what they need to do. If it does go to foreclosure, you just you go to the foreclosure process. And again, don't quote me because I haven't actually gone through this myself, but you, yeah, I think you have to set a price. And that's usually, I think it's called the clearing price, uh, which is generally what the number that we need to recover our principal and maybe any outstanding interest or attorney's fees. And hopefully somebody buys at that price. If nobody does at the auction, then we take the property back and that happens and we just dispose of it ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's great. It sounds like the one time you got close, you were able to do a workout with the person. I guess that just a testament, testament to, yeah, testament to money lending is a lot more fun if you're lending it to the right people. So borrower, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to watch your growth over the coming years as you switch from 
kind of this handpicked network of folks that you've gotten to know pretty well to randos who saw your Facebook ad. Um, yep. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about market risk. I mean, it feels like this is a really successful business that's easy to do when there's no, you know, sudden downturns, but, you know, in, in looking at you, I think we're, we're not that far off the same age. You know, we've lived through a few downturns where everything shuts off like a light. Um, that happened in 2008, you know, it happened to me when I was living in San Francisco in the early 2000s, just nobody was doing any transactions a couple months, you know, in the early, early 2000, I think things shut down too, in terms of transactions until they came roaring back. But, you know, how, how are you thinking about not being a bag holder in the next one? Like, is that, is that something in your mind or, or you think the turns are so fast, you don't have to worry about that? No, we, we absolutely worry about that, uh, especially right now. Uh, we're, we're focused on loan to value right now, just not reaching. We're, when we underwrite our deals, we're, def- we're definitely being careful as far as what we're, what we're choosing as a, as a value on the property. So it's, I mean, just underwriting good deals, following our checklist, following our process is probably the first line of defense. You know, we're lending up to 70%. I'd say our book, our average uh, loan value is probably, you know, maybe 65% right around there. So, you know, asset prices would have to drop 35% before we would be affected. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really how we protect ourselves. We underwrite good deals, work with people we know, or, you know, we work on building those relationships. And, um, you know, if, if in the event that happens, uh, we're comfortable taking these properties back and, and managing them. If you know, I haven't been through a downturn like that, especially like in this industry, but, you know, we would, we would have to think about how we would manage our portfolio, whether that be taking the assets and try and sell them. If, you know, there was, you know, a really big hit to asset valuations, you know, we might have to do that. We might take them over and try and get them leased up and hold on to them and hope that asset prices come back. But it just comes down to, you know, underwriting good deals, following our process and uh, being, being diligent when it comes to, to loan to value. Yeah, no, I, I dig that. So, um, I mean, what really keeps... You know, I was just trying to think about how if I if I wanted to go compete with you, which I don't. Uh, you sound very, <laughs> very formidable. Well, that's one of the things about this podcast that's great. Like usually by this point in the uh, in the in the interview, I'm like, there is no way I want to compete with this person. So uh, everything from wineries to the goat rental guy, like I'm just like, oh, there's no way. Like <laughs> if if everybody in this industry is this smart, I'm not interested. But like, so how are you building a moat around your business to keep Nimrods like me from coming in and being like, yeah, I'm going to beat, I'm going to beat Matt by, you know, 200 basis points, 2%. And, and that's why you should borrow from me. What, what ends up happening to, to keep, keep this from being a real red ocean for you? Yeah. This reminds me somebody on Twitter, you know, the one person that engages with my, you know, my tweets on private lending, uh, he asked me or somebody asked me, you know, you know, who's the best you know, lender out there? I think that's tough. It's, it's just such a fragmented space. You Google, you know, hard money lender, you know, whatever city, San Antonio, you're going to see yeah, like a thousand lenders at all claim. And a lot of them actually uh, are not lenders at all. They're brokers that pretend to be lenders and they'll take your deal and they're going to sell it to somebody else. Or, you know, they're not, they don't actually have the, the balance sheet to, to fund it. But I think I responded my response is something on the lines of there's, there's a couple of different ways that we can differentiate ourselves. I mean, the product at the end of the day, it's money, the same. So the way, the way we can separate ourselves in competitions, three things, 
And I don't think any lender, I think most lenders do one out of three. Well, not a lot of them are good at two. And maybe there's a handful that can do all three, but I don't think that's the case. I think we do two out of three pretty well. So first is terms and pricing. So that's your interest rate, how many points, what kind of fees are you paying? Uh, is there a prepayment penalty? That kind of thing. What's, what's the length of the loan? Seconds, speed and process. Process kind of goes hand in hand with speed. You know, how fast can you fund the deal? You know, if it's a big company, they probably have a lot more process. They're going to require an appraisal. They're going to be slow. So they're not going to compete on that one well. But that same company that's huge uh, has access, access to cheaper capital. So they're going to they're going to outcompete us on pricing. And then the last one I'd say is your customer experience. And technology, I think, plays a big part of that as well. So big companies as well. I mean, they might have some lending software. But, you know, I, I made the mistake the other day when I was collecting some intel on this, you know, just how we wanted to grow. Uh, signing up for like, I don't know, it was like privatelenders.com saying I was interested in a loan. And uh, man, immediately just robocalls. There are actually people that were calling me, but four or five different numbers from all across the country. Connecticut, I think Washington State. Somebody called me from Oregon. These huge national companies that just have teams distributed across the you know the states. That was a huge mistake. I got calls for months. Wow. Uh, based on that submission, and so there's a lot of people that aren't going to respond to that. I mean, they want to work with somebody local that they can go shake hands with. They can meet in an event that's going to show up to their project and kind of walk through them, through it with them. And so um, I'd say going back to the top. We're never going to be the cheapest, but we're not unreasonable. We charge, think, fair prices. We're the fastest in the business, like hands down. We can fund faster than anybody else. There's others that can do it as fast, but I'd say we're the fastest. The last one, I mean, we're we're focused on Texas because we have a presence here. We can show up at a project. We're going to eventually have teams in Houston or in Dallas and San Antonio. Um, we think we can outcompete those bigger national guys and that people are going to be willing to spend a little bit more to have the, that relationship. Uh, there's, I think I mentioned earlier, it's just a big ground game component to this. People don't go on Google and you know, use click ads to find a lender. They show up at real estate events or they get on Facebook. There's Facebook is huge with the investor community. Uh, there's a lot of real estate investor groups. And the last thing I think that we do kind of on the, on that third bullet is um, technology. So we signed up for, we spent months, or maybe not months, but weeks banging our head against the wall doing demos, trying to find a private lending platform. So something that could help us originate the deals and then service the loans. Thought we found the right one and uh, man, we ditched it after three months. We were hmm. taking all the data out of the system because we couldn't really manipulate it. And we were pulling it into Excel and then uh, Excel was feeding into Airtable and we were using Airtable. As our, if you're not familiar with Airtable, go check it out. It's got... Endless number of uses, but we were using it's really high speed, powerful kind of online database tool. And we were using Airtable to, you know, service the loans and then, um, you know, have dashboards and be able to see what was going on. And we cannot keep going with this system. We had reliability issues. Uh, people were having trouble logging into the portal. Big, the biggest thing about it is a portal. You need the borrowers to go into the system to read what they need to do and upload documents and communicate back and forth. I mean, it blows my mind that this industry, there's still a lot of people, even big companies that are doing things entirely back and forth by email. Like, hey, here's, here's a loan application with information that we've asked you for 50 other times. Can you please fill it out with a pen, sign it, scan it, send it back. I mean, just so much that going on. So we saw this big opportunity, found a 
system called Stacker. I'm not familiar with Stacker, but it sits on top of Airtable. And within once I found that, within 24 hours, we had, I mean, it took me two hours to build. We had a prototype borrower portal that basically integrated directly with Airtable. And we're like, oh, this is it. And so within a month, we uh, we transitioned all the data over and rolled it out to our borrowers. And um, it's amazing. It's fast. It's user-friendly. They, they, they can log in. They can submit new loan requests. They can see what payments are due. They can submit draw requests. They can update their, you know, their profile so we don't have to collect their personal information every time we do a loan with a loan application. And I think the the features are gonna just, I mean, just keep on keep on growing too. Like I had a call with Thacker yesterday a demo, uh, just because they have a new release coming out and there's some pretty interesting stuff that they're adding on, you know, payments. So we could rather than sending because right now like we'll send somebody an invoice on PayPal if they need to pay and a pay a fee. And in the future right. that could be directly in the portal. And I'm 35 never written a piece of code in my life. And this stuff is all no code. I built it like the preliminary part of it in two hours. It's great. So I think that's going to also help us differentiate. I think once we get people in the door and they can see how easy it is to use our, our system. And then that's just like the one-stop shop. Anytime they want to go look at a prior loan or they want to access, you know, I did a deal a year ago in that same area. Oh, I can go to the portal. I can pull up my rehab budget that I submitted. You know, we're even making it super easy if, if they have to extend a loan, for example, to, go in and see their insurance information and contact their insurance agent. Because like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these guys are not super sophisticated. So we're just trying to make it easy for them to access all their data. And uh, it's going going pretty good so far. Super cool. Well, yeah, I agree with you. I think there was this, you know, in in my world, investing in in stuff and and looking at small software opportunities. There were so many businesses kind of like yours where they needed like a specific SaaS software for that, but it's never was enough of a pain point and enough of a big enough market to justify the amount of work it was going to take for coding that something like that and getting a team of 12 together. And now that you can do it with these no code or low code things, it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to expand the breadth of the type of software that's out there for sure. And to even more kind of crevices of the economy, like where you are. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way, like cracks and crannies, not, not like a, not like a crevice anyway. Yeah, yeah, this, no, we you. talked about the I opportunity to edit stuff out. Maybe my use of the word crevice is a great opportunity to remove this. Oh, there you go. But I'm le- we're leaving it in. We got to do it right for the people. Love oh man, it. this has been super cool. I have learned so much about this business. Uh, and yes, I don't want to compete with you. <laughs> you seem really good at this. <laughs> so kudos to you. And I, I love the vision of, of you guys expanding and, you know, just how you're thinking about it is, is really fun. Just, uh, you know, I've seen people doing your business and, uh, you're right. A lot of it is straight out of 1985 fax machines and stuff like that, mm-hmm. bringing youth and, and just hard work and, you know, a little vision to it. I'm, I'm really impressed. Super cool. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, so, um, how can we help? What should people know? How can they follow you? I mean, I follow, I follow you on Twitter. It sounds like other people should too. What, what would be best? Yeah, no, Twitter's, Twitter's great. Um, it's just my name, Matt Weidert is my handle. I do post about this. I've, I've had my head down for the last couple of months. So I haven't been super active, but you know, come up for air here pretty soon. Uh, other than that, you can reach out on the website or if you want to check out just a little more detail about our, you know, kind of what we do. Uh, I think I'll, I'll give you the website and you throw it on there. It's just longleaflending.com. Perfect. Great. Well, thanks for doing this, man. Super impressed. And, uh, yeah, and I, 
I will tell you, you've had the sweetest mustache of any guest I've had so far. So keep, keep you, the, the viewers at home no, cannot that, see that. that means... But Matt's, <laughs> you know, Matt's killing you, the mustache. It's super cool. You don't know, you don't know how much that means to me. <laughs> Your business is okay. Your mustache is better. Yeah, yeah, that's why we did it. Cool, man. Thanks for being here.